A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to Dwell, a Cersei Institute podcast for homeschooling moms by homeschooling moms. And I'm your co-host, Renee Mathis, here with my other co-host, Karen Curry. Hey, Karen. Hi, Renee. Nice to be here again. It's so good to see you and to hear all the news about the Cersei office and how y'all are in a brand new building. Brand with new building. It's great. Everybody. Love it. It's so yeah. good to hear you. And we are also joined by our special guest, uh, my friend, Jonathan Rogers. And some of y'all may know Jonathan because he has written some wonderful books for kids, and we will talk about those. He has also written books for adults. Um, one is a biography of Flannery O'Connor called The Terrible Speed of Mercy. He's written a biography of St. Patrick. He's written a book called The World According to Narnia. And if you're a Cersei world inhabitant, you might be familiar with Jonathan because he hosted one of our 90 Minutes with the Classics and talked all about John Milton's Paradise Lost. You may be familiar with his Monday podcast, The Habit Conversations with Writers About Writing. And he also hosts his own website and membership group for writers, then that is also includes aspiring writers, current writers, past writers, wannabe writers, writers like me who are homeschool moms who wonder if they can do this. And we'll talk more about that. And he also hosts writing classes for junior high up through adults. So as you can guess, today's theme is all about writing. And we have a lot of things to talk about writing with our guest, Jonathan. So welcome. We're glad to have you. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I was just saying a little while ago, I'd, I'm usually one inviting people to be on the podcast. So I was I was glad to be invited. So thank you. Well, tell us, I'm curious how you you yourself came to be a writer. And, and now you are helping so many other people become writers as well. So tell us a little bit about you. I guess, you know, from a very young age, I was super interested in stories and in writing, you know, whenever I learned how to how to uh, make words, I wanted to write down stories. I the earliest extant story is one about Hazel the horse who got it sided and jumped over a fence. I-T-S-I-D-E-D, I think was how it sided was spelled. And and um so you know, wanted to 
I loved poems, wanted to write poems when I was little. And then I started watching TV instead. And so, you know, I, I, I didn't, uh, truth is I didn't write a ton, um, after I was, you know, school age for some reason. And, um, but picked it back up later. I always realized, I mean, I, I was, I was an academic. I, I got a, um, you know, after reading Paradise Lost in high school, I decided I wanted to be a Milton professor and pursued that all the way to the, through the PhD at Vanderbilt. And, um, like that, okay. I mean, I, I, I'm, I like being an academic. That was something that sort of was came natural to me. But I, what I really wanted to be was a storyteller and and uh, a a writer. You know, not an academic writer, but a a writer writer. And um, so after after a few years of working in a technology company, I just started writing books to see what would happen. And so that's kind of how I became a writer. Were you a teacher at that time too? I taught my way through graduate school and then didn't teach and um, didn't teach again until I started at New College Franklin. So that would have been, I don't know, in in the mid 90s that I stopped teaching and then picked it up again around 2010, 2011 at New College Franklin. Are you still there? um, You are, right? No, I'm not teaching at New College Franklin anymore. I love I love New College Franklin, but all my teaching now is through the habit membership and and adjacent things. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, how does your writing program work on the habit membership? I I know you base your classes off of stories that other writers have read. Yeah. Yeah. So once a quarter, I teach a, a six week class and I call, you know, my writing with classes. So it'll be right now in the middle of writing with hobbits. Um, usually the first quarter of the year I teach a, I've been teaching on a, um, uh, a, a Narnia book. So, um, you know, riding through the wardrobe or more uh, riding on the Dawn Treader. I, I may be doing riding with Puddle Glum um, at the beginning of 2024. Um, and so those those are classes that that people can sign up as one off classes. But then many, many of those people then join the membership. And in the, in the membership, you get all the classes, uh, everything that's in the, the archive, as well as any new classes that I might teach while you're a member. As I said, that's once a quarter, and then once a uh, once a month or so, I do a, a webinar just for members of the of the membership. I do office hours a couple of times a week. Um, people in the membership do um, what's the uh, virtual writing rooms where they just kind of get on Zoom and write together, um, and people love that. I, I I didn't when one of my members asked you know suggest that we do that. I thought well. You want to? I guess you could sit there at your own desk and have your Zoom camera on while you write, and um, and that's what we do, and people love it. It's the and it seems to help them be very productive to know that somebody's there expecting them to write. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we, since you teach the of your student cohort, which is junior high through high school, they get their own lectures yeah. and their own assignments. What words of encouragement do you have for homeschool moms who may be sitting here thinking, my kid hates to write. I don't know how to teach yeah. writing. Um, it, it, we struggle, we fight, whatever. We, we've all been there with our kids and one subject or another. So, Boy, that's that's kind of a hard question uh, for me to answer because I, I feel like the people who end up taking my classes are people who are just interested. <laughs> and you're talking about the people who aren't interested. Um, I mean, the, the people whose students, whose you know, whose students aren't interested. Um, but I do think 
it's helpful to um, maybe get out of a um, a rulish mindset. I mean, let's, we can talk about grammar for a minute. I I I know the way I've was taught grammar, the way most people are, ta- are taught grammar, is essentially here are some rules to follow to keep you a to keep you from looking like a, an idiot, and b if you get really good at it, you may be able to put down other people who break these rules, and so. There's no um, what's I mean, my approach to teaching grammar is, hey, this is just another way to love people, to love readers. And the remarkable thing about you know grammar is, I mean, there are many remarkable things. One of one of them is uh, it's it's this shared knowledge of how language works that that helps us connect with one another. And I also spend a lot of time talking about the fact that everybody gets grammar right. The 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 person you know who gets their grammar wrong the most still gets their grammar right about 98% of the time, right? Nobody accidentally says the truck blew. They know to say the blue truck, right? We we know how sentences get put together. And there are some, there are some trouble spots, of course, but it, I always try to reassure people that they really know more grammar than they do. And so I guess I would answer your question in part by saying you encourage young people to to not be afraid of writing by reminding them how much of this stuff they already know how to do. And when it comes to structuring a story, every day people tell stories. Um, and the things they know about telling stories at supper or when they get up, get together with their friends, most of that is applicable to writing. Now, the truth is, writing isn't exactly natural, right? If you if you put a baby in a family of people who speak English, they'll learn to speak English. If you put them in a, in a family of people who learn to speak who speak Spanish, they'll learn to speak Spanish naturally. You're not going to naturally start writing. That ha- that actually does have to be taught. Um and so that's there's something um it's worth remembering that it's that it's not natural in the way that spoken language is natural. Nevertheless, I think maybe when we teach, we're paying too much attention to to the fact that you know we're not resting in or relying on the truth that most of this we already do know how to do. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I know once once you've said or in one of the classes I took with you that. God has given us this wonderful, beautiful, amazing world, and we just have to share what's there. Mm -hmm. Say more about that, about writing. We think writing has to be creative and inventive, and and you are very encouraging about it's already out there. We just have to. Yeah. Yeah. You you don't have to make, you don't have to give the world meaning. Um, As a matter of fact, I think there's, I don't know if that's, if the world, I don't want to say anything heretical. but it may be a form of blasphemy or sacrilege to say it's my job to give the world meaning. I think probably it is. And I think writers, um, I mean, I think Christian people who write are at least as, as guilty of this as anybody thinking I've got to somehow, you know, um, convince people that the world has meaning or, or I've somehow got to, to put meaning in the world, the, the world that I present. And the truth is, you know, if we believe the world is shot through with meaning, um, then it's an act of faith to say, I'm going to give an account of what I've seen. And it's not, and, and by the way, it's not always readily apparent 
to me as a human being or to me as a writer, as a writer, what it all means. Um, and yet, uh, as I tell the truth about what I've seen, as I said, it's an act of faith to say, God put meaning here and it's going to make its way out one way. Even when I don't quite understand what the meaning is, I take great comfort in that as a, as a writer. Um, and I, um, I think, you know, another maybe corollary to all this is the idea that um, what I see when I look at the world, there's, there is an originality when I'm actually willing to give an account of what I've seen. The, the originality that writers long for is baked in. That is to say, when I feel like I've somehow got to conform the, you know, my stories to some notion of anything, including a notion of what originality might look like, I end up falling into patterns that are already established and that are already that somebody's already done. And if I just give an account of what I've actually seen, my perspective is distinct from your perspective, Renee, and your perspective, Karen. And therefore, if I'm honest about what I've seen, there's some originality baked into that. And, um, you know, I have something I call the um, the uh, other people's rodents principle. You know, and that is that I think my, um, I don't think squirrels are especially interesting. I see them all the time. And I'm not interested in squirrels, especially. We had some um, Australians come to my son's um, school as exchange students. And these are people who grew up around kangaroos, koalas. I don't know. I don't know how many platypuses are running around, but maybe they see some platypuses. And they were fascinated with the squirrels that run around campus here in Nashville, Tennessee. And that was a real revelation to me that if you just give an account of what you've seen, somebody there thinks that's interesting. (laughs) And, and, you know, I realize that most of the people I'm most people I know aren't interested in squirrels, but that's that may be exactly what somebody's looking for. And you can only. I don't know who it is who needs what I'm what I'm writing necessarily, but somebody does. And if I just give what I've got, good things happen. When you um, when you take your junior high and high school students through your programs, um, do you find that those kinds of moments happen with them? You know, where they see something as if they've never seen it before? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now the truth is, a lot of the students who um, who do my courses are already working on their, they have works in progress and they try to, they try to shape the, um, the, um, their exercises to, to, you know, fit with what they're already working on. But I'm always trying to get them to not do that and instead just do the exercise. And so just this week, the assignment is to sit in a, um, in the kitchen in the busy part of time of day and just give an account of what you see. Um, and I, you know, had to have a long talk with the, the students this week to say, this is literally, there's no way to work this into your work in progress. This is just you. This is as if this were a, a still life assignment in an art class. I want you just to give an account of what you see. And I'm really interested to see what, what comes of that because everybody's going to see something different. And by the way, even if everybody was sitting in the same kitchen, they would see things that are different. Um, that's just sort of the, the, um, the, the case uh, with point of view. That's how point of view works. Mm-hmm. That's why point of view is such an important aspect of fiction um, writing. 
Um, but yes, as students of all ages start to pay attention to what they're actually seeing, it's really fascinating what comes out. And, and let me add too, it, it, unless I'm mistaken, the format is that there, there's no, I mean, the homework is voluntary. There are no grades. Yeah. There's no certificate of completion or anything. Mm-hmm. The kids show up, they listen to the lectures. They, they've Hopefully they've been reading the stories along that inspire the mm-hmm. lectures and the assignments. And then they encourage one another in a form. Yes. Format. That's right. They, they post their stories, and this, this is both for the, for the adults and the students. They post their stories in the forum, or they post their exercises, and then as you post your exercise, your job is to give feedback on at least two or three people. Um, and to tell you the truth, I make it a practice not to give feedback because I can't give feedback to everybody, and so I let them take care of that, which, by the way, is training in hospitality and generosity and collegiality. Um, that is really where a lot of the magic happens in those classes is that the, you know, you learn a lot from giving feedback to another person, but one thing you learn is, um, well, you learn the value of generosity and, and that as you are generous, um, that comes back, um, in so many ways, you know, generosity, listen, writing, almost by definition means you've got to go sit by yourself and do something and be alone. Um, and I, one thing I'm so grateful for in habit world um, is the opportunity to, to give writers a place to gather and feel like they're not alone. Um, and I, you know, the only reason I can ever go in the cave to write is because I know there are people outside the cave mm-hmm. who care about what I'm doing, um, who need what I'm doing. Um, and so, um, and, you know, I know a lot of writers are introverts, uh, and I think introverts more than anybody needs to be reminded that people need them and they need what they're, they're bringing. I'm kind of an extrovert. So I really need, you know, it's, it's hard for me to go sit alone and do the, do the work that you just have to be alone to do. I, I don't, I just, I don't know how to do what I do without being alone. And yet, what I really like is being with people. And so I'm really grateful for this sort of collegiality um, that um, and the generosity and the hospitality that's, that's, you know, the chief characteristic of, you know, the habit membership in these, these classes. You know, I think people come to the habit thinking they're coming for instruction from me. I think that's why they come. And then they stay because of, of this community of writers that they find themselves in. Are these kids together? Is it a whole academic year? Or how do how does your workshop work? How does it work? That's yeah, my it's just a six week class. But then, way more than half of the students who take the six week class then end up just staying in the membership, and then they're just there permanently. I mean, for as long as they stay in the membership, it's there's no you know another six week class is going to roll around the next quarter, and they'll they'll do that together. But then in the intervening weeks, they're just on the on the forums. All the time. I don't know how um, uh, Andrea Yenny is the moderator of that forum. I don't know how she does it. She's so incredibly attentive and making sure. I don't think she has to devote a lot of her energy to making to actually deleting or correcting or anything. But she does have to make sure that it's it remains a safe and and happy and collegial place. And um, and so that's just going on all the time. And um, and she puts in huge numbers of hours. How in, many people? In, how many people are at a time in a workshop, typically? 
I don't know, uh, there, there will be, um, um, on, on a, when we gather for a Zoom call, I'd, I'd imagine there's about 80 might be an average, maybe 50. I don't know. So it varies. Um, yeah. So I know some of um, your habit members, um, including one who's been on a guest on our podcast, Lauren Mornamende, are published yeah. authors themselves, even homeschool moms like our yeah. parents, um, who have ever written books. And so um, any words of encouragement for the homeschool mom who thinks, I used to like to write. Now I, yeah. I'm up to my ears in diapers and, and reading. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's so important for moms whether homeschool moms or not homeschool moms, to communicate to their their children that while serving their children is is an important part of their life, an important part of their, their identity, it's not their whole life or their whole identity. And that um, I think kids need to see their parents doing creative work and being, um, even if that means, by the way, the dishes don't get washed today. If the kids want clean dishes, well, they can wash some dishes. That's okay. And they can also go play with Legos for a little while while, while mom does a little work. Um, one thing I love about the writing that homeschool moms, other stay-at-home parents do, is their incredible efficiency in saying, I've only got 15 minutes just to, to do this, but I can do something in 15 minutes. For me, you know, because I've got all day to do it, 15 minutes feels like nothing and I can't get anything done in 15 minutes. And then I see what, um, you know, stay-at-home parents who are just being pulled in every direction all day, what they can do in 15 minutes because they they know this is this is all I've got today. Um, it's really incredible. And then as they, what I really love to see is as they're productive of those 15 minutes, they realize maybe I can find 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And um I love to think about those, you know, those kids who thought mom was there just to make sure they were taken care of. I like the thought of them going off and playing with Legos for a little while and knowing mom is making something beautiful and I can go over here and play Legos for a little while. And um, and it's OK. Um, I just like I said, I, I think it's so important for parents to model for their children a a fullness of life. Um, that goes beyond my duties in relation to, to, to the children, but that there's larger duties, not just duties, privileges and joys beyond beyond that. Is that okay to say in the in the homeschool mom podcast? I think it's I think it's really important that we um, leave space, make space for being creative in whatever way interests us because it's true that you can get so wrapped up in the doing and the duties and the mm-hmm. all of it that you you lose yourself it's yeah. easy for a homeschool mom to lose yourself yeah mm-hmm. like you said the world is so wonderful that how wonderful to model that for our kids and yeah you know that uh so much out there okay i have another question for you because karen you brought it up too um your book about flannery o'connor Mm-hmm. A lot of people, I'm really switching directions here. A lot of people find her hard to approach at first or a little shocking. Uh, yeah. What are your words of wisdom for someone who wants to dig into Flannery O'Connor? Oh, well, where to start? Um, I think it is 
super important. It's helpful to, you know, one thing she said was some of my, some of my most ardent fans would be roundly shocked and disturbed if they understood that now I'm, now I'm off on paraphrasing. If they understood um, that basically she is coming from a place of Orthodox Christianity. I mean, or I mean, not Eastern Orthodox, but, but um, you know, she was Catholic and very Catholic. And, um, and once you realize, uh, you know, when I was first exposed to Flannery O'Connor, nobody mentioned that she was a Catholic and nobody mentioned she was a Christian person. And if you don't know that, you think, well, maybe this is a, some sort of nihilist because people die in these. these but, but, you know, her at the center of what she did was the idea that um, uh, sometimes it requires acts of extremity which also you know are often acts of violence to uh, to wake us up to the fact that maybe we don't have everything figured out already and that maybe um um you know to, to understand our our position before god and so there isn't any meaningless violence in Flannery o'connor while it's true that there's violence it's not meaningless uh, I, thought, I think it's also helpful to know that it's besides being kind of wild and scary it's also funny and so once you can can be um get used to the idea that these stories were supposed to be funny good things uh start to happen in your reading um now i feel like i've gotten off track the question was oh just kind of where to start thinking about her as i said once you realize that, that the idea here is we are faced with or, or we find ourselves in a universe where big issues like uh sin and judgment and grace and mercy are at work um and that we have many many ways to ignore the the big transcendent things that are going on and sometimes it takes a um a moment of extremity to wake us up to that I don't require that everybody like or enjoy Flannery O'Connor. It's okay, um, right? So it's just not for everybody. Um, she's such a good. She's, her description is so good, and and her humor is wonderful. I mean, I, yeah. want, I want everyone to love her, but I understand she's not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and I think one thing that she said that, that's that I find helpful, and that other people might you know, hope other other people find helpful, is the idea that she, well, she says. The devil is always an appropriate subject for my kind of comedy because he's always achieving ends that are not his own. And so, yes, there are evil. There's there's real evil at work in her stories. And yet that evil never has its way. Ultimately, the I'm not giving too much away to say that the misfit in The Good Man is Hard to Find. He does shoot the old woman at the end of that story. Um, he's a he's a um, uh, satanic figure. He's an he's a, a figure of wickedness. Um, but in that act of of shooting the grandmother, he awakens her to some some deep truths that she had been blind to before. And so he thinks he's succeeding in in killing her, but he actually makes it possible for her to have eternal life. That principle basically that the devil is an ass is pretty central to O'Connor's work. Again, 
that's going to help some people. Some people, some people say, yeah, I still don't like her. Yeah. I can live with that. Where did you get your title, The Terrible Speed of Mercy? Because I love the title and I feel like I should recognize that. Yeah. Where is it? It, it comes from the last page of of uh, The Violent Beard Away, okay. O'Connor's right. second novel. Um, <laughs> and if you didn't make it to the end of Violent Beard Away, it's okay. She was, O'Connor was afraid toward the end of her life that she was starting to sound like a caricature of herself. Um, and sometimes you read that book and think, yeah, she is kind of starting to feel like a little bit of a caricature of herself. Um, so, but that's where it comes from, the end of, of that novel, which is, it's uh, not my favorite thing um, she ever wrote, but I sure do love that phrase. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, I've got a question for you, and I've been anxious to ask this because you get to ask everyone who's a guest on your podcast. <laughs> I'm going to steal your question and ask you, who are the writers who make you want to write? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. Charles Portis is a big one. He's you know He wrote True Grit and he wrote Dog of the South. And um, he makes me want to write, and not even because I think he's the best writer in the world. It's just the kind of things he does are the kind of things I like to do, but he does it a little better. And it makes me, when I see that, I feel like, I think I can maybe do something like that. And I'm not there yet, but maybe I can get there one day. Um, and, that, and then, yeah, Flannery O'Connor, when I see what she does, again, not because I think I can be the next Flannery O'Connor. I don't think so. But... Um, one reason she so has been so important to me is that, like me, her native tongue is Middle Georgia English, and um, and to see it, it made a big difference for me as a writer um, when I quit trying to be an academic and quit trying to speak that language and just uh, reading her made me think maybe my native tongue really can be the raw material for something good and important and. Um, and I, I just counted a gift that she ha- just happens to be from the same, you know, same place I'm from. And uh, I always, you know, I love I love when writers have somebody who speaks their native tongue that they can turn to and say, there's somebody who's doing what I'd like to do. And so that's a big part of the reason she's one who makes me want to write. Thank you for answering that. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So I love Charles Portis, too. I love um, True Grit, but I haven't read God yeah. of the South. It, is it as good? No, it's it's not as good. Um, True Grit is just so great. Yeah. It, I mean, what what is as good as True Grit? But Dog of the South, any any one page of the Dog of the South is hilarious. And then the whole thing, maybe maybe the whole book isn't the most satisfying thing you've ever read. But any one page, you can just let it fall open any page and read that, and it is so funny. Um, I just I love that book. I love every I love every page of that book, um, but it feels like maybe the the whole is less than the sum of its parts. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, wanted to sign up for a writing workshop, uh, your pod, your habit podcast, hmm. your membership, how do they find you? Uh, well, thehabit.co. Not com, thehabit.co. And there's a the there. So thehabit.co. Thehabit.co. Uh, yeah, that's the main hub for, for everything. Um, but then even more importantly, going to thehabit.co is signing up for my weekly letter for writers called The Habit Weekly. Oh, is that at an email that you send? 
That's an email I send out every, it's on Substack now. Um, send that out every Tuesday morning uh, at 6 a.m. unless I'm a little late. Um, but, uh, and then what I'm, you know, that's where I make various announcements about here's a class coming up or, you know, even you know, when I have space to um, to work with people on manuscripts one-on-one, I do that some. And so I take about two or three of those a month. And um, and so all that is kind of funneled through um, the Habit Weekly. So um, so that's that's the best place to get in touch with you. Get on that list, and then you'll have my email address, and we can we can talk. Great. All right. Yeah. Well. Thanks for asking. Yeah, we. This has been really great. We're at about our thirty-minute mark. So, Renee, do you have any last question or? Uh, I'm just thank you. So so thankful you got time in your schedule to uh, join us. And I I hope some writers or maybe future writers who are listening are encouraged by what you had to say. And uh, I hope so. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, Renee. Thanks, Karen. Yeah. Thank you for being with us today, and uh, we look forward to reading more from you. So, thanks. And here's to home. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.